This week's guest is Alexis Tinoco. Alexis currently lives in Chicago, Illinois, where she is the bar director at The Avery. What's unique about the bar program at The Avery is that it is chef-designed, meaning that it explores the unique techniques and serviceware via cocktails. It's fascinating to discover the detail and effort involved in the bar program that Alexis aided in building, and it's a conversation you're definitely going to appreciate. As always, check out the show notes for any links we talk about, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. I'm your host. Dan is the producer. What's going on with you, Dan? Uh, not much going on you with me, man. Just uh, I don't even know why I fucking ask you yeah, this every week because we're all in lockdown. Like yeah. nothing's going on. Ever. Nothing has changed for about <laughs> seventy weeks. It seems like. <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ! Yeah. The only thing that changes is the guest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we do have another amazing guest for you today, Alexis Tinoco from the Aviary in Chicago. Will be joining us very shortly. Before we get to her, we should mention that uh, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, you should uh, shoot us a subscription. Just hit that subscribe button, rate and review if you feel like you have time for that, but only if you're going to give us a good one. Mm -hmm. We should thank Zach Hanna, as always, for the artwork he does for the podcast. That's at Zach Hanna Design. And a shout out as well to Aaron Hatchell, as always, for helping with some of the booking. Uh, And he is starting his own thing, AKT Hospitality. They do cocktail classes spirit and wine education, and wedding and special event planning. So you should check that out at akthospitality.com. Without further ado, we should probably just bring in Alexis Tinoco. How are you doing, Alexis? Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm trying to shoo my husband out of here. He keeps trying to take a peep at what's going on, but I'm great. Thanks for having me. That's the Zoom Thanks. meeting life. Somebody's always involved in the yeah. background. I was like a head coming out of the corner. But yeah, thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. Yeah, no, thanks for doing show. it. Yeah. Um, also, so, hi, Aaron. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, you know Aaron. You know Aaron, right? Yeah, yeah. we were a yeah. uh, cocktail apprentice program together. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, he's been super helpful. He also just uh, has been doing some collabs with my bar in town as well. So that's been pretty cool. Yeah, so let's uh, just jump right into it here, Alexis. You are working still at the Aviary in Chicago, which is one of the more famous cocktail bars in North America, I would say. So, how long have you been? How long have you been doing that there? And what is your specific role? Uh, so, I've been at the Aviary now about seven and a half years. Uh, so, most of my time in Chicago, I've been in Chicago about eight of those seven and a half. My current role is bar director of the aviary and we also have our little speakeasy down below called the office so yeah yeah i was there when i was in chicago it's awesome and what you guys do with um cocktails is amazing and i want to get into that but let's start uh sort of back it up and talk about how you got into the service industry uh where was your first job and uh what were you doing uh so i got into this industry completely by mistake Uh, my first first job (laughs) like high school job yeah, sure. Uh, I worked at McDonald's when I was 15. Yeah, that counts. Um, and an In-N-Out burger had opened right across the highway. So they were paying outrageous hourly like rates to get people to come work for them, like competition. So as a 15-year-old, I was making like 16 bucks an hour doing nothing all summer and spent the money at the movies and on whatever inconsequential things 15-year-olds buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was like my first official job. That's, <laughs> that's fucking that's pretty that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, I don't pay anybody that much. <laughs> uh, I hope that nobody on my staff actually listens yeah. to this. <laughs> well, well, out of curiosity, what was minimum wage at the time? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, I was were, literally you were making more I than was, <laughs> probably. I yeah. the jobs where you could work at the movie theater, you could work at the fabric store, and it was. I lived in. Uh, I was in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, oh, okay, so it's not okay. like I lived out in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, I didn't really care either way. My friends were working there, and they're like, they pay a lot, come and work, and we'll just you know fuck around all summer. And I was like, you got it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. not a lot uh, of research went into it. No, well, that's how most of us get started, I think. Uh, and then basically what hooks us all in is the money. And then eventually the love comes later, I find. <laughs> <laughs> if it comes. <laughs> uh, so, okay, what would you consider your first more like bar restaurant style job? 
So when I was in college, I had a, you know, a few uh, odd jobs here and there uh, at restaurants and at bars. I would say like my first real foray into like uh, really appreciating restaurants. Um, I was still in college. I worked at a place called The Farm at South Mountain at a restaurant called Quiescence. They uh, were like fine dining, you know, chef driven, seasonal, the full farm to table gig. And they had a really massive wine program. So I took a job there because I had a friend working there at the time. And I don't want to say the rest is history, but that was kind of the the beginning of really loving the restaurant and food industry. Mm-hmm. And so obviously that's probably where you're starting to learn about wine and maybe like your more classic cocktails. Yeah, definitely. They had a small cocktail program and for what I knew about cocktails, I thought it was pretty like intense, like shaking up tomatoes into a I know it's a tomato margarita. So I, that was my first introduction into stuff like that. It was definitely more heavily wine focused, but I think it definitely piqued my interest because when I moved to New York, I took an AGM job at a, a restaurant in the West Village. And, you know, my manager was like, why are you always behind the bar? I keep finding you behind the bar. Like I can't get you out from behind the bar. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of when, you know, I realized because of her that, you know, maybe that's kind of where I wanted to end up. So mm-hmm. a little bit of both. Nice. So what, when did you get to like, where would you say was your first like real gig where that's what you were doing behind the bar all the time? I would say in terms of real gigs, if I wasn't like pouring beers, I, it would be um, when I moved to, to New York city, that mm-hmm. was, Oh shit. When was that? 20. It was sometime after 2010. I can't remember anymore. The years are all blurring together. But yeah, you know, she let me be the bar manager. And so I kind of ran the beverage program, albeit it was very small. She handled the wine. It was kind of my first introduction to putting things on the menu, trying to be creative and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's something I always like to ask people who have had a hand in doing this is when when you're developing sort of your style of putting together a cocktail list, what do you have a specific style? What goes into it? And what do you think specifically goes into what crafting a good list or is there or is it just kind of whatever works? Uh, you mean like a cocktail menu? Yeah, sorry. No, uh, no, it's OK. <laughs> um, I've just never heard it called a cocktail list before. I like that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it is a list of cocktails, right? So cocktail menus. You know, aviary is much different than a lot of other places. And a lot of our focus is on, you know, technique or flavored ice and and such. So I guess my approach thinking about that is a little bit different because we are thinking about how can our bright and refreshing drinks have a flavor changing profile? What can we carbonate? What needs to be shaken? And if it's shaken and there's no ice in it, how are we presenting this so that it's interesting and exciting to the guests? If it's something stirred and boozy, what are we, what are, what else are we doing? Are we aromatizing something like what else is going to happen with it? So I feel like that's a little bit different than something per se, like the office, which focuses heavily on flavors. So trying to find a good balance between, you know, maybe like sweet and savory flavors, like fruits versus things like truffles. And then looking at the types of spirits we're using. So we always try to make sure there's something for everybody, vodka, gin, bourbon, scotch. We want to hit all of those notes. Obscure spirits kind of play a back role in that. So they're usually used as modifiers. So we don't scare everybody right out the gate. And then the same, the same thing, keeping things like long drinks or highballs, something carbonated, something low ABV, uh, moving into some meatier drinks that maybe are focusing on savory and are shaken, but the spirits are a little bit darker. Uh, and then moving into stirred beverages as well. Mm-hmm. However, I think we like to think of which spirit goes into each of those drinks on the list as maybe not always so stereotypical. So thinking about how cognac can be a shaken drink instead of a stirred drink and how gin can be a stirred instead of a shaken, I kind of like to play with that a little bit too. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So the like when you're crafting your menu, so basically are you are you sort of just saying we kind of want something from it for everyone, from somebody who's just kind of getting into cocktails all the way to like the nerds who come in who do this for a living and want to be blown away by something completely uh, unique and creative? Yes, definitely. And the something for everyone, I think, is really important because it's an introduction to, you know, your bar, your restaurant. So, you know, when we say that menus can be intimidating, that's in the sense that, like, you don't recognize anything on the menu. That can be a little bit scary. And not everybody wants to ask questions all the time. You want to be able to find what you're looking for and hopefully Mm -hmm. order it. And then maybe the questions come later as you chat with your bartender or your server and you kind of get to know each other. So something for everyone 
I think is a, an important first step in establishing some trust between yourself and, and your patrons. I think it's also helpful because it opens the floodgates for so much more. So I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good point too, because there are people like everybody's different, right? Some guests come in and they just want to be able to find something that they know they're going to like order it and drink it. And then there are other people who do want to talk to the bartender and talk their way through the list and maybe get sold on something. Exactly. And, you know, a a great example is we just reopened the office about three weeks ago now. And so we've been down there bartending myself and our other bar manager. And it's just been the two of us. And it's been a lot of fun because our menu, we actually took a lot. She was in world class. She made top 10. What's up, Jay? So (laughs) she actually had a lot of these really cool drink ideas in her back pocket already. And we ended up, you know, exploring those and putting those on the menu. And it turns out two of them were vodka drinks. And what was really cool is we noticed that the people that were gravitating towards the vodka drinks weren't vodka drinkers necessarily, but the flavor profile fit what they wanted. And it was really nice to have vodka drinkers come in and feel like that there was something for them as well. Because I think what we see a lot of times is if it's a spirit that doesn't, that we think doesn't add anything that we don't put it on our menu. And then those people have to like ask for it. And when you're like, Oh, we don't have anything. They're like, Oh, then can I just have like a vodka soda? And then they get a weird look. And it's like, I love that we laughed and we're like, Whoa, too. But it was great to see the reaction from people who were just like, this is what I was looking for. I'm so happy you guys have vodka on the menu. And then having our whiskey and bourbon drinkers also order these bright, refreshing, you know, Mm. tart, you know, awesome drinks. So yeah, that's yeah. interesting because yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. I mean, like being immersed in the cocktail culture at uh, all of my bars, it's every all the bartenders I know who take this seriously. It's like nobody wants to work with vodka anymore because they because they don't think it adds anything to it. But I'm, partially that can be correct. But it's also like there are people doing some different stuff with vodka now as well. Right. So if you have a certain type of vodka, it can add. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if anything, I think it's a great medium or vessel to carry other flavors because maybe you want something else to to be more highlighted. Maybe you want to focus on one of your cordials or your Amaros and, the, you know, the vodka is for proof or it's the vessel to carry. I also think that vodka companies are exploring a lot of really cool options uh, nowadays with like their infusions and their essences. And so, I think they're kind of also bringing to the market things that bartenders are kind of gravitating towards. Like uh, we were working on a, a milk punch to replace one of our other ones. And it's uh, like a gin and watermelon milk punch. But I, you know, I was like, let's throw some watermelon vodka in there and see if it, you know, changes the proof and adds another, le- like a level of dimension that we, we were looking for. So I think there's many different applications. And at the end of the day, if it's the vodka soda, then so be it. Because yeah. like, get at me. I love a good gin and soda. Like I'll drink stuff like that. So it's well, cool. It's, that's true too. And like, especially for people who work in the industry too, I think after like, if you get off work or whatever, you're not always looking for like a crazy crafted cocktail. Sometimes you just want a, like a Bud Light or a, or a vodka soda. All right. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah, just need Got a Fernet, something like that. Yeah. Well, obviously Fernet. Yes. <laughs> So what, something else that I've always struggled with, so I wonder if you can maybe give me some advice here, is the line between having a lot of options for your guests when they come in, but without overwhelming them with too much information. I find that I really struggle with it all the time when we're putting together menus at the different places that I own and like or that I've worked at before as well. It's uh, because I... One thing I noticed is that if a guest comes in and they don't really know what they're looking for and they're just dealing with pages of information, then that's when they're more likely to be like, you know what, fuck it, I'll just have a vodka soda. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a time and a place for overwhelming menus. I think if you're a spot that's known for having um, a lot of selection of things, like I think of places like Cannon in Seattle or Rumba and like specializing in whiskey or rum or vintage spirits definitely a time and a place. And if you're a place like that, I think it's super appropriate to have extensive, crazy long menus that you can guide guests through. Uh, When it comes to cocktail menus, you know, I've seen the gamut and I've seen a lot at aviary. Sometimes I do feel like, you know, I look at the menu and I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of options, a lot of drinks, a lot of different menus, like prefix menus or five course menus, a lot of different beers on the back. Like it's, Mm-hmm. If it overwhelms me, I, I can only imagine what a guest is, you know, experiencing that comes in for the first time. And it's probably a little bit of excitement and a little bit of intimidation. Obviously, I think that that's what, you know, good servers and bartenders are for right. is to kind of 
alleviate that. But I think of menus that I really enjoy and like, you know, something that comes to mind is like Trick Dog in San Francisco. And I love the thematic menus that change and, you know, like the record menu or the one that was like the children's book, like what rhymes with Trick Dog. And I loved the application of, you know, you have 10 or 15 really great cocktails around a thematic menu that you get to change when you want to, or when you're ready to. Mm -hmm. So I think that something like that is super appealing. If you don't have the option to do that, I love kind of delineating classics and using classics as your interpretation, like, you know, an interpretation on a, a margarita or a Martinez or a whiskey sour, because if you are kind of letting people know that like it's a whiskey sour at heart, I think a lot of people are way more comfortable. And then when they read all the crazy ingredients that go into it, there's, they still have you know, their connection there. So you, you understand what you're, you're getting basically. Um, right. So I think that that's important as well. Yeah, that's uh, that makes sense. Actually, that's a kind of a good way to get people moved in the right direction of like trying some unique cocktails, but at least they have a basis of their knowledge there. It's like, I know I like, I like I put that, like, I know what a whiskey sour is. So if this is just mm-hmm. kind of a, a play on that, then that makes it easier for me. But I, I yeah. agree with you in that, like, it's, it's not even so much like, let's say you're a cocktail bar specifically, okay? Then having like 10 to 15 cocktails on your menu, that's, or more, is totally reasonable. But if you're, but then it's when you are also like doing maybe a relatively extensive wine list and a relatively extensive beer list as well, it's almost like exactly. you can just overwhelm them. And that's, that, that's where my struggling comes in. It's like, okay, if I'm going to do a cocktail bar, do I only have cocktails or like, but you can't, because you, sometimes going to want a beer. Yeah, definitely. I think something that, uh, so taking that and I'm going to use the office as another example. Um, We have a cocktail list right now. It's like 10 cocktails. We have things like truffled spirits and truffled cocktails. We have an extensive rare and vintage spirits list. We have an extensive spirits spirits list. Um, And then we have a pretty big seller beer collection. So it's a lot to, to pack into one place. I think the way that we have managed to do that well is to kind of play into it. So when you come into the office, you're offered this leather bound book. Uh, It's meant to be like a little over the top and a little Mm -hmm. extravagant. And when guests sit down, we preface them. We're like, hey, this is like 47 to 50 pages of reading. And (laughs) if you don't want to read all of this, let's have a conversation about what you do want. And let's find the right thing for you, whether it's a vintage, whether it's a you know, a scotch on, you know, with a water back or whether it's a cocktail, um, Mm. maybe what you're looking for is not in here maybe I can help you find it. So I think, you know, a menu is only half of that. And if you're going to have a lot of stuff, you got to make sure that you know how to navigate that so that you can let the guests know that like, you know, Hey, I'm here on this journey with you. And like, let's navigate this together because 50 pages is, is kind of a lot, you know, 17 wines by the glass plus whatever else is going on. It's a lot. Yeah. So then you run into sort of the other side of the equation, which is like making sure that your staff has this knowledge so that they can actually guide them through the process. And that can also be a struggle because as much, I mean, probably somewhere like the aviary aviary or um, at the the office, like the kind, like you, I'm sure you get a million applications and you can sort of weed it down to people who have a lot of experience or a lot of knowledge. But at an average bar, maybe let's say you get like, sometimes you just have to to hire someone and train them up. And then you find out halfway through that really they were just there for the dough and had no interest in learning all the info, right? So. Yeah, it's a little half and half. Unfortunately, you can't always tell which ones are going to want to stick around and keep learning. And then there's also the, well, if we don't pay as much as somewhere else, but the education is great. I also understand. I'm like, people have to live. Like you can't always just select a place where like, you know, not everybody has the, you know, the the opportunity to be like, well, it's going to be like a two year stage where I don't get paid anything. And I'm just, I'm learning so much, like very few people can do that. So mm-hmm. I think there's a fine line between making sure that you are uh, obviously like there's incentive, monetary incentive for, for your, for your staff. But if you're looking at the training and education side, I got to be honest that we we love getting applications for people that are green in this industry, people that want to learn how to bartend, but that maybe have only swung beers and are kind of like, I don't know how to bartend. We love to teach and educate people, you know, or help them get to that point, which is a lot of fun because A, as a bartender, I have really bad habits. I can, I, I know how hard it is to break people of bad habits or to try to train somebody to kind of conform to, you know, your standards. And so somebody who's a little bit less seasoned, sometimes they're 
while they're more impressionable, things stick with them really well. And I feel like you have an opportunity to kind of let somebody develop into the bartender that they're going to be or the server that they're going to be while instilling in them really good habits or teaching them, you know, the right way to do things in terms of, you know, people maybe not knowing all the stuff on the menu. That's, that's tough also, but I'm also like an advocate for like people learn as they go. So like your training has to be good, right? Like, yes, you have to have a good basic foundation that's being laid down for you, but it's okay to learn as you go. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to make a mistake or get something wrong. It's okay to find favorites and to like advocate for your favorite spirit or your favorite beer until you're comfortable learning about something else. So, you know, it's kind of the idea is that if you don't come in every day and you're not learning something new or pushing your boundaries or, you know, continually growing as a person, like it's a, it's probably time to move on, but like B, what else can you keep learning? So it really is a fine line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like that's how you have to go about your hiring. Like, look, if you if you want to work here, part of it is that we expect you to want to learn. Yeah. But otherwise, it's not going to work out. And then just make if you if you make that clear at the beginning, then that makes the decision easier (laughs) if, if they're not living up to expectations. Exactly. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your how your stage program at the aviary as well, because I mentioned to you before we started recording that my bartender, my head bartender at Sugar Run, shout out to Matt Houston at Matt Houston. He is uh, <laughs> actually did a stage at, at the aviary. So talk to me a little bit about that program, like a sort of how, how you guys started doing it in the first place, how it works when someone comes to do an stage there. And then how it's been working out for you? Well, we typically just open the back door and throw them into a flaming gauntlet and let them kind of fare for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and if you make it through the flaming gauntlet, then the real stage program begins. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we've had stages from all over the world, which is really fun. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of really cool, cool people. Some come for a couple of days, some come for months. Aaron Diaz, what's up, Aaron, if you're listening to this, is from Peru and he came in stage for like months one summer and you know it was really fun flair throwing bottles around and just like he was super cool but he like he came for a long time he came for a while he really wanted to dive in and kind of like really be submerged in the culture and everything that was going on he actually came back twice (laughs) and we've had people come for one or two days so typically with the stage uh it's somebody that wants to i guess learn a little bit more about the behind the scenes how we run things kind of the ins and outs of the bar and you get so to break down the aviary bar, we have an ice program, which involves two or three people that are running, you know, from AM to PM shifts, our ice program, they make the flavored ice, they make the in the rocks, they do all of the hand chipped ice work. Uh, we have two clients. I'm just going to cut you off for a second there, yeah. just because a lot of people probably don't know what any of that stuff was that you just mentioned. Like what is the flavored huh? ice? What's the in the rocks? So flavored ice aviary does a lot of a way to manipulate flavor of a drink as it changed, you know, as it kind of through time uh, without offering up uh, a drink getting warm or over diluted. So ice typically serves the purpose of adding more water. Um, and if you don't have ice, your drink will eventually turn lukewarm, correct? Right. So yeah. the, the flavored ice was a means to do both of those things, keep your drink cold without diluting flavor. And then uh, in a way also changing the flavor profile of a drink as, as you move forward. So for example, you know, you have a margarita, And over time, it changes into a spicy Fresno margarita because of the spicy Fresno ice. So things like that, uh, sometimes they're more complicated. Sometimes they're just as simple as that. So uh, when we talk about flavored ice, uh, it's that. Uh, And then as for in the rocks, uh, aviary is very well known for kind of a boozy stirred old fashioned style or Manhattan style cocktail that's served in a literal, people have called it a dinosaur egg on Yelp. It's an ice like a, like a spherical ice mold. It's hollowed out and we fill it with the cocktail and table side, it gets broken open by the guests with a slingshot that has a metal piece on it. I tried to do something like that and I couldn't fucking figure it out. So what I, so let me just see, you don't have to give away any of your trade secrets if you don't want to, <laughs> but what, how I was taught, shown to do it was to make like an ice sphere or whatever mm-hmm. you decide to make it in, right? And then I took like a mini soldering iron and sort of, put a hole in the top of it and then filled that with the, the cocktail. And then what we were going to do was give him a little tiny little mallet, little hammer to break it. Up. So similar to a slingshot, but different, but I could never, every time I tried to do the soldering, it just fucked it all up. 
in theory, very similar. So I'm going to walk through step-by-step because there's actually videos online with this and it's in our book. So it's not like a trade secret, but um, for those that haven't seen, I guess it once was a trade secret. It no Mm. longer is. For those that haven't seen this, we basically have someone who we take water balloons, we fill them with water. They are filled to a certain weight. So within a certain range of weights, they weigh every single one to make sure it's correct. They tie off every single one. And then it goes into a super chiller, which is circulating basically very cold liquid. We do a mix of water, a high proof spirit. So it never freezes. Um, and it basically freezes the ice from the outside in. We time it so that the shell should be a certain thickness. We pull them out of the super chiller. We dump them into an ice bath. And then what we do is we cut the water balloon off. We drill a hole look with a drill and the bottom end or the more narrow end of this uh, ice sphere. We syringe the water out and then we hold those shells until we're ready to use them. Those shells are also then weighed to make sure that they are between a specific weight range so that what, however much water we are trying to put into a cocktail, um, we don't over or under dilute. So we always try to keep it within a certain range. Um, the ice shells are then syringed full of cocktail for service or when they're ready to sell. So it's, it's yeah. So that's similar to what, like, but a much better method than the one I was trying to do, which is probably why mine didn't work, (laughs) but but similar because it was the same thing. You need to syringe the cocktail into it at the end of it. So I guess what's crazy about this is, and I'm, I'm, I think you were going here anyway, before I cut you off, just to explain some of this stuff, but you've got somebody working there constantly just doing that all like, so not to get into crass financial issues, but like, what's the overhead on something <laughs> an experience like that? Or are you relying on like a stage? So this is all, these are all our hourly employees. Most of them have been with us for, for many years. And honestly, labor is a big part of why our cocktails have higher costs. So if you look at an aviary menu, it's not a $12 cocktail. Some of these run up to 29, you know, over $30. Mm. A lot of it has to take into account for the labor and the, and the products that we are using, like uh, doing reverse purification for our, our jungle bird cocktail. It's that, that takes a big chunk out of somebody's day and things have to be done properly. So you can't rush through a process. You have right. to make sure you're taking the time and care to do it efficiently. So you're moving as fast as you can while making sure that the product is not going to fail on us when we're using it for service at night, because we've had that happen or we've tried, you know, somebody tried to rush through something or somebody was a novice and we didn't check the work afterwards, for example, the in the rocks and, you know, there were air bubbles. And so the air bubbles cause little tiny holes to start appearing and the cocktail leaks everywhere. And so like you run into issues like that. So we try to make sure that we balance really intricate things like the in the rocks and the reverse verification with more simple things like freezing flavored ice. Hand chipping ice is uh, it's not a quick task. So, you know, we also make sure that we're using Hoshizaki or other types of ice and not just everything on a hand chip sphere. So everything kind of has a place in a home. And I think we believe in, you know, everything in moderation to a certain extent because the aviary is... <laughs> I feel like when you look at us, uh, you're like nothing in moderation. But yeah, you, it doesn't sound within, very moderate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think within the scheme of our theme, we try to keep things in moderation so that the labor is, it makes sense. Okay. Uh, and then, so you also have an entire station just for garnishing. Is that correct? Or, or how do you, like, I, I know that, the, well, let, actually I'm going to let you describe it because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So the, um, but like, you when you have sort of a almost kitchen style process to your cocktail menu. Yes. And so maybe you just describe to us how, exactly what goes into that and how it works. So when you say kitchen style to our uh, cocktail menu, just quickly, I'm going to kind of describe how the aviary runs. Yeah. Uh, we have an expediter. Typically, it's myself or our other manager. And so we basically are kind of the gates into the bar. We call a ticket or an order or a tasting menu. We kind of run that entire board. And as the tickets are called, the bartenders will call back. And we usually have three or four on the line. Um, and they will start to to make and produce these drinks. We have four stations. Uh, Technically, the bar has five, but the fifth station is usually closed off and used for building things or for making garnish. So each station has specific drinks that are required to come off of it. I mean, we try to keep like things with like, like if you're an egg white shake and drink, you're probably going to go with the other ones on a certain station. 
And certain stations are harder than others. They require more. So like the second station on the line is usually one of the hardest stations because it requires a bartender to multitask, shaking and stirring multiple things and garnishing. It's kind of where some of the more traditional style drinks come off of, like shaking with an egg white. And one of our other stations is responsible for doing the things like the portholes. So they have to build portholes, those circular devices from Crucial Detail that hold the all the garnish and the cocktail inside. And it trans, it's like, uh, it's an infusion that you can pour over time. Um, we can talk more about that later, but this person is, you know, you build 20 of them to start service. And as they get depleted, you have to keep building them. You have to keep maintaining the garnish and keep up with whatever that requires while firing other cocktails as well. So four bar stations, one bartender per station. And in terms of like the garnish for, for stuff, I would say we're not so much like have a station just for garnish. I would say each drink has very particular things that need to happen for it before it can be sold or go on a tray and walk out to the dining room. So it's a combination of being as simple as expressing citrus over top to maybe the kitchen has an entire composed dish that accompanies something. Mm. So that's, it's, it's kind of a little bit of everything. I wouldn't say that it's uh, heavily, heavily garnished all the time. Okay. I mean, that sounds incredible. So basically your job there is to make sure that this whole borderline factory is running as smoothly as possible during a given night of service. Yes. I mean, you know, the managers I think can take on many different forms and we can do many different things. We, a lot of times put ourselves wherever we need to be, if that's, you know, helping out in the line and making drinks or out down in the ice room. But most of the time we're running the expo station because it's kind of the last the last spot that something's going to go through before it gets to the table. And so there ha- there's like an inspection process, you know, the chefs inspect their dishes before they go onto the pass where we check restrictions before they walk out to the dining room. And so it's a position that requires a lot of responsibility. And so putting somebody, uh, you know, hourly in that position who is not being held accountable by, you know, you know, the manager, I feel like that's a little bit unfair. I feel like the managers need to be accountable for, you know, things that, you know, require some discretion and whatnot. So Typically, we will find ourselves on that station on a weekend night, uh, responsible for making 700, you know, making sure 700 plus drinks walk out of the kitchen properly to their correct tables with the correct garnish or with the correct restrictions. That's, I mean, it sounds overwhelming, like, especially because at a place like that, like consistency is vital, right? It really is vital. And the bar was built so that it could be consistent in that way. So it, it's built to go fast. And something that we realized, when COVID happened and the bar reopened for a small period of time was that the bar is not built for, for being slow and it's not built for having only one or two bartenders. It needs to be fully manned and it needs to be going fast. It's most efficient when it goes fast because we open up the bar every day, meaning we physically take the tops off of the bar. We physically put the wells together and start getting all of our batches arranged. Every station, because it's responsible for certain things, if you shut down two stations and jam everything onto the front two stations, you can imagine that things are going to be out of place and things don't work as efficiently as they should. So I think that, you know, we were running with half of our bar staff, you know, because hours were cut and our hours were slower and we were, you know, 25% capacity. And at some point I was like, man, this bar is not built to go slow. It's not built to be, you know, multiple touches and taking your time, it's built to go real fast. And so that was a very interesting uh, realization to have about something Mm -hmm. that runs, like you said, so efficiently. Yeah, that's interesting because like, yeah, I I find that super interesting as well. Because like generally you would think, oh, slower must be easier. But you built that bar with the notion that you're going to be busy. So like, of course, when you slow down, like cut back on the number of people there, the number of stations or whatever, instead of making that like more efficient, it makes it less efficient. That's really interesting. Okay. Tell me about the porthole. What is this all about? (laughs) So the porthole is, um, it's a circular device. I'm going to try to describe it as best I can without making, I'm someone's going to be trying to draw this in their head and it's going to end up looking like an elephant, but, um, (laughs) the circular device that basically has kind of a pour spout at one of the kind of 45 degree angles it was designed by Martin Kastner at Crucial Detail. They have since branched out and done tons of amazing stuff. They just put like this little coffee pot on Kickstarter that I really wanted to buy. But I was like, I go to get coffee every day. Don't waste your money, Alexis. But <laughs> he's a very like, uh, you know, ingenious idea designs. And so they worked with Chef when we were opening the aviary to design something that would be appealing and transformative over time. 
Like we talked about flavored ice and yes, that's an overtime transformation, but this was like something sitting for an hour. What's going to happen to it over every, you know, turn of five minutes, every turn of 10 minutes, every turn of 15 minutes, how can, how is this going to stay interesting the entire time it's in front of somebody? And so it was designed to be a time infusion in which you would pour yourself like an ounce or a two ounce pour every, however often you wanted to. It's clear on both sides. So it has two panes of glass that kind of come together and stick around this, uh, a ring piece. And so you can build your botanicals on the inside, tea, dried fruit fresh fruit, herbs, spices, whatever you want in there. Typically we have a tea of sorts and it can be a strong tea, like a pu'er or a black tea. It can be a non-alcoholic, not an alcoholic, a, non- a non-caffeinated tea, like a rooibos. We typically will do some sort of fresh herb like mint or basil or fennel and then fruit or dried fruit and some other like spice notes like a cinnamon or black pepper. And so you get layers of flavor that start to come through over time. Like maybe the first thing you are going to get is going to be, you know, that fresh fruit, the citrus notes, the oils from the citrus that we put in there. Maybe then you're going to get start to get some mint then some black pepper. And finally, maybe you're going to get some smoky black tea. So over time, this cocktail, that's one cocktail becomes another cocktail becomes another and then another and then another. So it's a pretty intricate process, but it's really a cool idea to continue to evolve something flavor wise without making it muddy and by keeping it interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. And that, I mean, so like I I can, I'm just imagining being in there in the bar and trying to select between all these amazing ideas that you have. What's, uh, do you have, are any of these, do you consider them more popular than others or are people pretty much trying everything? There are some that are more popular simply because they've been tweeted about videos, right. Instagrammed to hell. Usually it's the in the rocks. We talked about this mm-hmm. earlier, the little ice sphere, yeah. the porthole, just because it's such an iconic aviary slash Alinea group thing. The back pot, which is the, tea or coffee siphon with the burner down below. And so we turn it on and, you know, with via pressure, liquid goes into the top, cooks with some stuff and then comes back down. So people have seen that a thousand times. Anything that involves fire, people love anything that involves smoke or dry ice. Um, Anything that you put on Instagram for... (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And we... Sometimes we'll test the waters and put something on that doesn't have an insane presentation. And there are people that will order things based on flavor or like a luxury item. But most people want to see that they'll come in and be like, which is that drink that you guys light on fire? And literally ask for that without even knowing what's in it sometimes. (laughs) So yeah. That's a shot of Zambuca. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Not what I saw. That's not the one I'm talking about. We're busy. That's what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how many seats are in the aviary? In the aviary, um, let's say we have like our, like our turns are typically, we can seat like 70 people, a little, a little over 70 per turn. So that's, uh, I mean, yeah, you're pumping out a shit ton of cocktails on a busy night there. And with all like you, you absolutely definitely need that sort of station to station factory um, that, like there'd be no other way to do it. Yeah, I think if you were, I'm, I've seen there are bars out there that do a wonderful job of stuff like this. Like one of my favorite things was uh, the first time I went to the Nomad and I saw their service ball tucked away in the corner behind, like it's in a service station. So you don't, the service wall doesn't like it's the bartenders that you see working are not running the service wall. Right. They're over here jamming out massive amounts of cocktails as fast as they can behind this curtain. And that to me is like service well is exciting to me um, because you go fast because you're servicing an entire dining room. So yeah, you have to right out the gates, be ready to go fast and keep going fast throughout the night. Yeah. There's a place in Boston that does that as well that I went to. I think it's called, I think it's called something silly like drink or just something like that or like there is yeah there is a bar called drink in boston is that the one yeah yeah there it's kind of downstairs and it has the bar yeah it's great bar yeah 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 and so then they do the kind of thing where it's like you tell them what flavors you want and then they make you a drink but there are there is a bar that you can sit at but the majority of it's done behind like sort of a curtain like you were mentioning as well that's um and so, like, at the aviary, obviously, you can sit at a bar as well and chat with the bartender? Uh-uh. No. At aviary, it's, uh, you can see the bar when you walk mm. in. It's behind, like, this uh, <laughs> this big metal 
gated thing. I don't know exactly. It's a cage, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we get asked many times a night, are you in the cage or are we in the cage by every guest that walks by? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the expediter typically has their back towards the front door or towards that gate, which runs directly behind us. We do have a kitchen table that is situated inside the kitchen or inside the bar area. And then the bar employees will face out. So they are actually guest facing on this massive custom built, you know, stainless steel bar, you know, four or five of them working, you know, and kind of facing out. So guests can see us as they walk by. They can sit in that kind of gallery area if they would like. But most of the people will sit in the lounge area and they will not actually interact with us at all. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a bit of a different experience. So you're really relying a lot on your service staff to be sort of the point person on walking somebody through your menus. Definitely. The service staff have to kind of be very knowledgeable, very engaging. And I mean, you got to think of it this way. When that guy comes in and is like, give me the drink on fire. Sometimes you have to find a really nice way to be like, hey, it's got this, this, and this. Are you into that? And a lot of times people are like, oh, thank you for telling me I hate whiskey. Let me get right. that other pink thing over there. So yeah. it's it's not just about taking orders and kind of processing like robots. They really have to be uh, intuitive and they really have to kind of make sure that like they're engaging guests. And like I said earlier, kind of taking them on a journey because the menu is a little bit of a journey and making sure that, you know, we're properly satisfying their needs. They came into the aviary looking for showy stuff. We sent them all the showy things. So they really have to really be on their game. Yeah. And and so, again, this is your sir. You, you kind of need a lot of people working like the Because if you're busy, you still need that server to be able to go to the table and spend a significant amount of time at each table. It's not like just swinging by, picking up an order and onto the next table. Like you, like you, you expect them to spend a little bit of time with each uh, guest. Exactly. And I think a big part of that is uh, the standard at our sister restaurants. So like Alinea, which is three Michelin starred and we have next, uh, which is one Michelin star. And so the standards of fine dining are kind of ever present in, in, in our bar um, simply because, you know, this bar was created by a chef with the idea that it's going to be a kitchen and it's going to be a fine dining cocktail kitchen. So, We've kind of moved away from like the formality part, like a little bit, because I think we understand that we are a bar or a lounge and people are coming to a bar. But I I think that I'm totally went off on a tangent here. I think to like a certain extent, you know, they really do have to kind of know what they're doing and understand what they're doing and make sure that, you know, the service that we're providing isn't super stuffy and that what we're what we're doing isn't going to be off putting um, while still keeping it like fun and lively. Mm -hmm. So... Like who's who's behind all these? Um, uh, you're the, like behind the restaurant and the um, and the aviary and the office. Like what is it? Is it a conglomerate of people or is it a couple people? Uh, so we have yeah we have yeah a few things. We're like a small big company. Mm-hmm. So we have our chef owner Grant Ackett. We have Nick Konis, who is also uh, an owner. He actually is probably maybe now a little bit more well-known for Talk, which is a reservation you know, online platform. We also have Steve Bernacki, who was formerly um, kind of part of the business side of things for a lot of our restaurants. And, you know, they're in our day-to-day, like we see them, we talk to them. So they're not so far removed from, you know, that we don't know who these people are. Like they're, they're very, they're very visible in all of our operations, which is really cool. And then from there, each restaurant is kind of headed up by their executive chef and the GM. Aviary is a little bit of an outlier because we are a bar. So, you know, we have an executive chef and we have a GM, but we also have three bar managers. My boss, Micah Melton, who is the beverage director for the entire Alinea group. And then myself and Jarmel Doss, who kind of run the aviary in the office, you know, as a whole. So, well, I I just like, I'm just trying to get my head around about how all this would work with how many people you have to keep employed to do this. And then, like you said, cutting back doesn't really work for the efficiency of the the process of the bar. So like how bad has COVID affected you guys with like um, restrictions on uh, capacity and, and what have you? It's definitely been a struggle. We were really fortunate. I think that our owners foresaw, you know, COVID as cases started to pop up here and there. It it was going to be, they were very intuitive. It was going to be more than just a small thing. It was going to turn into a big thing. So I think that they were already kind of on the back end thinking about what's going to happen if restaurants shut down, what's going to happen. And so we were closed for all of one day before managers were recalled to start to go operations. And it was like, 
it was balls to the wall. It was like the real thing. You know, we had most of our kitchen and back of house staff were back. And then the bar managers, myself, Jarmel and Micah were back. And, you know, for a while we were selling hundreds of to-go meals a day, you know, Alinea and Max, these fine dining restaurants doing pared down foods that people could have Alinea to go, you know, I wouldn't say we were doing hundreds of cocktails, but, you know, imagine between, you know, a few people we're selling, you know, 75 cocktail kits and we're not talking single bottle cocktails. It started with like kits, like you would mm-hmm. buy a 750 bottle from us and a bottle of mix and a bunch of garnish. And so, you know, we're putting together 75 of those a day, you know, trying to run through our backlog of liquor. So it was really intense. And I had a very positive outlook on what that meant for us as a company. I, I didn't know what it was going to look like a year from now. And then, you know, to go slows down, people can only eat so much takeout. And so the company did a really good job of reinventing what takeout meant. And we started shipping things nationally for Valentine's day for Easter. Um, We have massive pot pie production over the holidays. And we were shipping hundreds, thousands of pot pies weekly across the U S so they reimagined what to go meant and actually kind of took advantage of, uh, of, being able to set, we have the ability, let's, why can't we package food to go and ship it, you know, across the country in terms of everything else, I would say that with restrictions, we were fortunate that shutdown happened in the middle of a Chicago summer, which was patio season. So many, many restaurants, just like in New York city, took to the streets, opened up patios on the sidewalks, the government or the city, uh, you know, officials, help shut down certain streets so patios could extend into where, you know, would normally be a driving area. So I feel like we were able to kind of recapture a little bit of, of joy in that. We had, uh, you know, 25% capacity in our bars and our restaurants, plus an outdoor space. So it felt busy. It felt semi-okay. And then I think when that second shutdown happened, it was kind of a little bit more of a stark cold reality that, like, it's going to be winter and, like, what if we don't survive this? Thankfully... We're still here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was, you know, just like everybody else, people were bleeding money, um, relying on government grants. But we were fortunate enough to make it through that, and also fortunate enough, I think, to retain a lot of our staff through the furlough, who are going to come back and you know are excited to come back when we reopen. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's uh, sort of the underrated thing about this pandemic for the places that have managed to still exist is that uh, like restaffing everything because so many. So many of us who did this for a living have decided that, fuck, this is not as uh, secure a job as I had originally thought it was going to be and have just bailed yep. and gone to do something else, right? And that, that yeah. makes it even harder to find good people at places like the aviary or if you're trying to do sort of an elevated style of service. Yeah. Also, I think uh, owner operators looking at and managers as well, looking at uh, what that means for them. Um, I think it's been a little bit of a reckoning this past year. Um, You know, the restaurant industry was really, really hard hit. And I think a lot of people, while understanding that, have also started to embrace, you know, the idea of having a more positive lifestyle. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are gunning for like 40 hour work week should be a thing again for restaurant individuals. Like, I think that there was. I think that this might have been a much needed reckoning and breaking point so that like employers and employees can have a, an even ground to meet on now. I also, you know, you hear that some places are having a really hard time hiring back. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, well, that's a no brainer. If you mistreat people, like, why are they going to come back? And so even even as we're fortunate enough to get our bar staff to come back, because I've, I feel we highly value education and growth and, you know, making sure people understand, you know, their, 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 their self-worth and their value. Even as we look at our staff coming back, you know, you have to also reconsider. I'm like, I don't want, we don't want our, our prep team to be here, you know, on a 12 hour day anymore. Like just because I do, it doesn't mean somebody else should do it. And I think it's been a silver lining to, to be able to look at how we perceive our staff and what we expect from them and what we now should be expecting from them moving forward and making sure that they understand that like, we want to advocate for for all of you to have more healthy and positive lifestyles. So mm-hmm. I feel like even though this was a shit year and it's been a shit year, I, I hope that the silver lining is that people are going to start treating people better and recognizing their worth a little bit more. Yeah, like let's hope. And um, and is there anything else that you feel like you've learned through this pandemic or or anything that's changed due to like government taking it a little easier on us like uh, that you can uh, use going forward. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like here in Ontario, we were never allowed to do 
to go booze ever, right? So, and then they changed that during the pandemic to give us a break because that's all we really had. So now we have, we can do like pre-made cocktails to go or and sell beer and wine out the door. Yeah, like now that that genie's out of the bottle, they're not putting it back in. Like we're going to be able to continue to do that. So that's like a bonus for when things get back to normal. What, like in Chicago, has there been anything similar do you think? Yeah, so we definitely, the to-go cocktail thing, I think was a, a push in the right direction. I feel it's the same way that now that that's been released, it's going to be really hard to put a cork on that again. I think it's mm. just going to, it's it's got to be able to stay. I personally don't know how, I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of businesses and people are going to take advantage of it. But I also see that people just want to be out. They love the idea of going to bars and going to restaurants. So takeout, while it's a great option, if you do want to dine in and get a cocktail to go, the majority of the business from our industry is from people, patrons dining in, you know, take, take out drop like this, as soon as some of the restrictions were lifted and the restaurants and the bars like aviary and office that were not open yet, you know, we saw a dramatic decline in what people Mm -hmm. wanted from us as well. So I think it'll be good to have that, especially as kind of like a side hustle or a side thing and to know that you can capitalize on it. One of the other things that we did, which I I really appreciated, um, was we have a big backlog of spirits. We have tons and tons of stuff that we have been collecting over the years that, you know, you know that you can't physically sell through in a lifetime. We were able to open up uh, an online store and start to sell some of our really cool stuff, some of our whiskey, some of our barrel selects, some things that you just really can't find anywhere. And I thought that was a really good a golden opportunity for us to hopefully capitalize on some of our inventory because mm-hmm. it's just sitting there. And we're also giving people the opportunity to kind of to see and purchase and relish and, you know, things that they don't have access to. Right. Yeah. And that's good. Like the, like, I mean, if it's, it's good if we can get at least something good that has come out of this last year or whatever, something additional, right? So, yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. If maybe you could drop us a hint on if somebody is who's listening right now wanted to come in a stage at uh, aviary like once things get back to normal how do they go about doing that you can feel free to email me i alexis.tinoco at the aviary.com we honestly like you can email our the information line but like i think that just going to the direct source is a lot easier there's some people out there that want to stage you can shoot me a line you can message us on instagram um, we're kind of all over the place but i'm I'm the direct line. <laughs> okay. Well, I think you're getting, uh, well, hopefully you'll get some of that because honestly, like anyone listening to this will be fascinated by what you guys are doing there. It's amazing. And of course, anyone who's in Chicago should be going to see you there. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and talking all about it. Thanks a lot, Alexis. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. No, it was great. Thank you. Thank you.